Okay, as you're making your way back to your seats, um, good to see you all. Um, if you don't have a Bible in your hands this morning, just raise, raise a hand. Um, one of the guys from the back will bring you one, but you're definitely going to find it helpful this morning. We're going to be working our way through uh, the bulk of Matthew 24. It's quite a complicated passage. Um, so if you've got that in front of you, it's going to help you uh, just get more out of what we have coming up here this morning. Uh, will you pray with me as we start? Uh, we have quite a uh, challenging text ahead of us and yeah I certainly feel pretty humbled by it and um, uh, I think it'd be good for us to just commit this uh, time to God in prayer. Lord Jesus um, we are conscious of the fact that your word is a lamp to to our feet, a a light to our path Um, and we really want it to be that and Lord God we want it to uh, show us what you want to show us. And um, we come to a passage this morning in Matthew which is challenging, which maybe uh, forces us to open our eyes to things that we would maybe even rather have them closed to. Uh, And yet we pray that your priorities would shape ours, that your uh, vision would shape our vision, that that your heart would uh, shape our hearts. God, so that we might uh, live the way that you want us to, so that we might serve you the way that you intend. So we pray, God, that you would be with us, be among us by your spirit this morning, uh, helping us to uh, understand this, just as you caused these amazing words to be written with the full authority of God. We pray that they might fall on us with that authority this morning uh, and send us out uh, to live and to obey them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, um, if you're a regular here... um, you will know that we've been working our way through the whole of Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's been a great journey uh, to do the whole thing from the beginning. We've been marching forward in fairly big uh, chunks. And uh, we've been particularly drawing attention along our journey to the structure of the book, haven't we? Uh, one of the privileges of reading the Bible in big sections is that you don't lose the forest for the trees. Uh, so we've been trying to keep our eye on the, on the forest and realizing that Matthew actually structures his gospel really carefully. Um, So we learned that at the start he has an introduction, Uh, that's where we learn about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Uh, At the end we're going to find he has a conclusion, Uh, that's where we're going to learn about the circumstances of Jesus' death. And in the middle we found that Matthew divides up the story of Jesus' life and ministry into five subsections or books. Uh, Everyone should be pretty familiar with that if uh, if you've been with us along this uh, journey we've been on. And you might remember why he does it. Uh, Throughout his gospel, Matthew particularly is in the business of drawing out the the contrast, the comparison between Jesus and Moses. Uh, And so just as the life and ministry of Moses is recorded uh, in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Matthew records uh, the life and ministry of Jesus in five books in his gospel. And you might remember how those things work. Um, Each one of these books in Matthew's gospel begins with a kind of narrative, journalistic section uh, where we find out some of the things that Jesus did. Then Matthew moves into uh, more of a a teaching section where we find out some of the things that Jesus said. Uh, And then each one of these books ends with some variation on this key little phrase uh, that we read for the first time after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Matthew uh, writes down, when Jesus had finished saying these things, 
and then he moves on into the next book. And so that's our rhythm, five books, each of which starts with narrative, each of which moves into teaching, and each of which then concludes with that phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, da-da-da. So if you've been following that structure along, um, uh, I hope that's been uh, helpful for you. But you might have been wondering where it's all gone lately. Uh, Because uh, the last time we had that little phrase was back in chapter 19, verse 1. That seems like a while ago. Um, uh, Signaling the end of book 4 back there in chapter 19. But things seem to have gone a bit quiet, don't they? Well, hang on. Um, uh, The explanation is just that the narrative section of Matthew's final Fifth and final book is by far the longest of all of them. It takes five chapters to get it done. It runs all the way from chapter 19 to chapter 23. But now we're finished with that. So in our text today, we're going to switch gears a bit. We're going to jump out of narrative into teaching. And actually, if you open your Bibles and flip on to chapter 26, the very first verse, you'll see that telltale little phrase again. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, because this is the end of the very last book. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is just two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So we're heading right into the final acts of Matthew's gospel here. Now, why does uh, Matthew do all this and what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that if we want to be alert readers of God's word today, we need to look at Matthew 24 and 25 together. Um, We're going to see as I take uh, chapter 24 today and as Greg takes chapter 25 next week that there are lots of common themes here because they really belong to this same integrated teaching section. Uh, It just addresses really one subject, uh, which I guess we would call the end times. Now, I don't know what that phrase, the end times, does to you inside when you hear it. I think for some of us, it may fill us with excitement. Uh, You know, in the same way that maybe the bits of a a great book or a great film are often near the end. Uh, Perhaps we're excited uh, to hear what's going to happen towards the end of this great story that God is writing in human history. Um, Perhaps we're also excited uh, because we sense that this is the part of the story that's most directly relevant to our own lives. Maybe we're excited to see if we can make some connections between what the Bible says about the last days and the events of our own history. But for others of us, I guess that phrase, the end times, may fill us more with dread. Perhaps we've experienced some of the bitter fruits of Christians getting over-interested and over-excited about the apocalyptic material that's in the Bible. Uh, Perhaps we've heard people, perhaps we've even followed people in the past who've made great predictions about when Jesus is going to return, only to look uh, foolish when their predictions didn't work out. Perhaps we've been discouraged by the way that uh, Christian writers have interpreted the symbolism in books like Daniel and Revelation, 50,000 different ways uh, that all seem to contradict each other. Um, And uh, we've got to the point where we just wish that this stuff wasn't in the Bible at all. Well, wherever we are on that spectrum between kind of enthusiasm and maybe a kind of despair, um, I think I hope we will all agree Uh, that the person who most needs to shape our thinking about the end times is Jesus himself. Uh, And that's the privilege that we have today. Uh, Today we get to hear uh, Jesus on this topic, uh, telling us what we need to know and also what we can't know uh, about the last days. Now studying this text has been uh, a real privilege for me. It's been very clarifying and stretching. It's brought some powerful applications um, uh, to bear on my life. 
about how I should live and think and pray differently. I'm praying that that will be the case for each of us here. So in our hearts, maybe let's just kind of prepare ourselves for God to do that kind of work in us. The chapter is quite technical. Um, so our strategy for approaching it is going to be a little bit different from what we normally do on a Sunday. I hope that's going to be okay for you. Um, the first three quarters of this message are going to be quite teachy um, because we're just not going to get far with this text if we don't have a strong understanding of what it is that it actually means. Um, but when we're done with that, with a following wind, then hopefully we'll get to some stuff that's a bit more preachy. Um, so uh, bear with me if that's um, what you're waiting for. We're going to have quite a bit of teachy, but we are going to get to the preachy at the end, okay? So everybody in on that, on that basis? Right, okay. So stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Um, Let's honor the fact that these are the very words that God has spoken to us. We're going to read Matthew 24. I'm just going to read the first 22 verses, uh, and then I'll dive in and out of the remaining parts of the chapter as we go along. Just wait there a moment. Okay, Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is later on, the disciples come to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they'll deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on a housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This is God's word. Let's uh, take a seat here and uh, get stuck into it. Okay, so as we read through this section, um, you will have noticed that it's Jesus who sets the table Uh, for this discussion that we've got in front of us. Uh, He does so with these comments that he makes uh, as he's walking through the temple courtyards uh, with his disciples. Uh, Looking around, he says to them, do you see all these things? Uh, Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, this is pretty provocative stuff 
from Jesus here. In Jesus' time, the temple in Jerusalem was one of the architectural wonders of the world. Um, About 20 years before Jesus was born, uh, Herod the Great decided to restore it and extend it as kind of like the, the pinnacle of his architectural achievements. And since then, teams of stonemasons and craftsmen have been working on this thing pretty much constantly, and they were going to keep on working on it for another um, 30 or 40 years. So it's like an 80-year project uh, to build this thing out. Um, Rick, if you could just put that up. Um, I hope you can see that. Uh, that's an image of a scale model that's on display uh, at the Jerusalem uh, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem uh, gives us a bit of an idea into just the grandeur of the whole thing. Can you imagine walking through uh, that structure? So that's where Jesus and his disciples have spent the day. So we can imagine why the disciples were impressed, can't we? Uh, uh, we can also imagine why Jesus' remarks captured their attention. Imagine that it's you here and you're walking past a, an architectural wonder of the modern world. Let's say you're on holiday in Australia. Uh, walking across the Harbour Bridge and um, in Sydney, and uh, your tour guide uh, points out Jorn Utzon's iconic Sydney Opera House down on the waterfront, and he says to you, did you see that? It's got to be an Australian accent, hasn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down, mate. Um, I really wasn't planning to do that in an Australian accent, but it just came out. Anyway, that, for those of you who are confused, that's the difference between the English accent and the Australian accent. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, that would get you talking when you got back to the hotel later on, wouldn't it? You know, and that's what's happening here. Uh, so this is a conversation that Jesus wants to have, isn't it? You don't say that kind of thing uh, without expecting some kind of comeback. Um, uh, and that's what happens. Um, he sets the table with a provocative remark for a discussion that's going to happen later. And that's what we get when we shift to the Mount of Olives later in the evening. And it's kind of interesting to see the response that he gets. Uh, if you look at that in verse 3. The disciples come to him privately and they ask, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Hmm. The disciples don't ask the question that I think I would have asked if I had been in their shoes. I would have said, hey, Jesus, like, what do you mean when you say the temple is going to be destroyed? Like, you know, they haven't even finished it yet. What kind of disaster could possibly account for that? But that's not the angle that the uh, disciples take, is it? You see, the disciples have already got a theory uh, about what the meaning of Jesus' words is. The disciples think that the destruction of the temple is connected somehow to his return and to the end of the age. Now, we can't be exactly sure what it is that they had in mind here. It might be that they're picking up on that comment that Jesus made earlier in the story. We have recorded in the Gospel of John where he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. That comment is going to come up in Matthew's Gospel later on. Uh, when Jesus is being mocked on the cross. Uh, But it might be just that they're referring to some unrecorded teaching that Jesus gave uh, on the topic of the second coming. We just can't know. I mean, he spent three whole years with them. Uh, We don't know everything that he said. But either way, what we can be sure about is that they're making a connection here between the destruction of the temple and some kind of decisive, age-ending reappearance of Jesus. Uh, And they want to know when it's going to happen. They want to know what sign they should be looking for to tell them that these events are about to take place. Uh, 
Now, this is really important for our understanding of this passage, because this question that the disciples ask here is going to drive what follows. It's kind of the contents page for this chapter. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about his coming and the question of whether there are going to be any signs that will tell us that it's about to happen. And he's also going to address this issue of the destruction of the temple. And he's going to show us how all those pieces connect together. So the disciples' question sets the agenda. And if we keep it in mind, we're going to find it helpful uh, as we work our way forward. So look first at verses 4 to 8. And you'll see that Jesus begins here by addressing this question of signs. Are there going to be any signs that will indicate that the end of the age is about to take place and that Jesus is about to return? The answer that Jesus gives in this first part of the text is fairly straightforward. The answer is no. Jesus lists out a whole range of possible signs uh, that we might think would indicate that history is reaching some kind of climax and that Jesus is about to return. He talks about false messiahs. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about nations rising against nations. He talks about famines and earthquakes in various places. But his principal concern is that believers should not be deceived by any of these. None of them is going to offer evidence that the end of the age is imminent. He likens these events to the beginning of birth pains. Uh, Now, for any of us who've gone through this uh, process of waiting for a baby to to be born... Uh, We know what he's talking about here, don't we? The early stages, the kind of stop-start contractions, the will-it-won't-it period before the real labor starts. Now, the point of the analogy is that's not the time to rush down to the hospital, is it? Those early contractions definitely tell you that the action is not far off, uh, but it would be a very rash mother or father-to-be who started making predictions about the precise time of birth uh, just based on those things. Uh, It can be hours from there, true, but it can still be weeks. So then Jesus moves on into verses 9 to 14. And we find he's still addressing addressing this question of signs. So far we've thought about kind of public signs, haven't we? CNN type signs, wars and rumors of wars and all that stuff. Uh, But now he looks at more private signs. uh, Signs that maybe might impact the lives of individual believers. Are there going to be any signs of that sort uh, that will indicate that the end of the age is about to take place and Jesus is about to return? But once again, the answer seems to be no. Jesus looks forward and he sees persecution for believers in the age ahead. Uh, He sees believers being hated by all nations on account of their trust in him. He looks forward and he sees what we call apostasy, uh, people renouncing their faith in him and uh, betraying the believers who remain. He looks forward and he sees false prophets. He sees people rising up within the church who will misrepresent and distort the gospel, deceiving many people. But he sees all of it as a kind of ongoing state uh, that will characterize the age that we live in from start to finish. Now you do hear verse 14 of this text being used as a possible sign, as an indicator that maybe the end might be just around the corner. In verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And some people want to use that to provide a kind of dashboard um, of how near we are to the second coming. 
You know, the kind of thing. If Jesus will come again when every nation has been reached, then if we can just look around the world and uh, uh, keep a tally of how many nations have been reached and very, very intentional about sending missionaries to the places where uh, they haven't been reached, then Jesus will kind of have to come again. We'll have our arm up behind his back. Some people say that that's what Peter has got in mind in 2 Peter 3 when he talks about looking forward to the day of God and speeding its coming. But I think we've got to be a bit cautious about that. If we read verse 14 in its context, uh, we find uh, that actually Jesus was talking about Christians being persecuted by all nations back in verse 9, wasn't he? And that kind of presupposes Christianity being present in all these nations. Uh, but that doesn't seem to bring about the end in and of itself back in verse 9, does it? So I think we're on safer ground if we just see this whole section as a description of things that must happen, certainly, before the end will come. Um, But avoid making any of them into a sign that the end is literally just about to come. So we take this whole first part of Jesus' response together now. What do we learn? Well, the answer to the disciples' question about... uh, Well, sorry, in answer to the the disciples' question here about signs, uh, we hear Jesus telling them that they're really aren't going to be any definitive signs that he is about to return. There are going to be all sorts of things that characterize the era between his departure and when he comes back. Wars and famines, false messiahs, false teachers and so on. But none of them are going to tell us that the end is imminent, that it's literally just about to happen in the next few weeks or months. So much for signs then. What about the destruction of the temple? that Jesus referred to back in verse 2. Well, that's where he goes next. Let me give you an analogy here that uh, might help us make some sense of this. Uh, Imagine for a minute that I'm the founder of a uh, startup business where you all work. It's not much of a startup, is it, if you all work there? But anyway, let's imagine there are only a few of us. Um, I don't know exactly what it is that we do. You know, let's say that we've invented some cool new kind of medical technology and we're busy developing applications for it, kind of building our, our business. Can you picture that? Yeah, that's what we're all going to get up and do on Monday morning. Well, imagine that at our monthly staff meeting, I come in and I say to you that at some point in the future, it's likely that our business is going to be sold uh, to one of the big pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, that's the way that these things usually go. So it's not you know, particularly amazing or uh, uh, striking that I should say that, is it? Now, you might say to me in response, hey, Neil, because we have this nice kind of informal horizontal structure with flat management and everything. We're all on first name terms here. Um, You say, hey, Neil, what's going to be the sign that this is about to happen? What's going to be the sign that we're about to get sold? And I might say to you, well, actually, there isn't going to be a definitive sign that we're about to be sold. Um, uh, In this kind of situation, we'll probably have, you know, one or two of the big players come through looking at us. We'll probably go through a few more rounds of venture capital funding. I guess we'll probably lose some of our key people even during that time. Uh, But none of those things is really going to tell us that the end is just around the corner. Now, does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus has just done, isn't it? That's equivalent to the response that he's just given them. Um, So, so far, so good. But imagine that our conversation then develops Um, To help you grasp what I'm saying, imagine how I might kind of flesh this thing out with an example that you can maybe relate to more easily. So I may say, hey, well, when you find yourself standing at that big trade show next month, 
uh, and you find yourself talking to the new business development people from Eli Lilly or GlaxoSmithKline or one of the, the big companies, it's going to be a pretty intense moment when that happens, right? But I want you to know that not even that is going to be a definitive sign that we are about to be sold. In fact, probably we'll find ourselves in many situations like that as we go along this journey that's ahead of us. Honestly, when the day comes for us to be sold, I think probably we'll all be taken by surprise. So do you see what I'm doing there as uh, founder and CEO? I'm, I'm uh, bringing an added level of reality to the answer that I gave you uh, by relating it to something that's coming right up in your calendar. And I'm also pastoring you a bit, uh, helping you to know how to handle it when it happens. And I think that's exactly what Jesus goes on to do next. Jesus brings an added level of reality to his answer by relating it to something that's coming right up in his disciples' calendars. Uh, And he also takes the opportunity to pastor them through it a bit. But obviously the event that he's referring to is much more serious than just the, the trade fair in my example Uh, The event that Jesus is referring to here is the fall of Jerusalem. And so he starts. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, well, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now at this point we probably need a bit of a refresher on our first century history uh, in order to make sense of this. Jesus is speaking these words in roughly AD 30. But it turns out only 40 years after this, in AD 70, uh, probably the single most cataclysmic event in the whole history of the Jewish nation is going to take place. Uh, More cataclysmic than the uh, uh, annihilation of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in about 700 BC. Uh, More cataclysmic than the deportation of the entire southern kingdom by the Babylonians in uh, 586 BC. More cataclysmic than the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes back in the 160s BC. See, in AD 66, the Jewish people are going to, and it sounds crazy when you look at it from a distance, but they, minnows that they are, are going to rebel against the Romans. Ah, yeah. And after a lengthy struggle, the leaders of this rebellion are going to end up besieged inside the walls of Jerusalem along with the whole population of the city, men, women, and children, by a guy called Titus Flavius, the son of the Roman emperor Vespasian. The Jewish historian Josephus was actually there, and he writes a truly terrifying account of what happened. By a superhuman effort, kind of Roman style, uh, the Roman soldiers built a wall around the entire city, Uh, Their goal was to stop people coming out to scavenge for food. And so the people inside Jerusalem literally began to starve to death. Josephus says that the famine devoured people by whole houses and families. When people did manage to escape, uh, to keep the level of fear at uh, a high peak, uh, the Romans and the mercenaries fighting with them would kill them and then publicly cut them to pieces and look through the body parts for valuables that they might have been trying to smuggle out of the city. Titus, we're told, was uh, reluctant to damage the temple because of its architectural value. Nice that he was uh, so concerned about that, but not so much about the human cost. Um, But in the end, the uh, the siege became so intense and the resistance of the few remaining Jewish fighters became so desperate that he actually ordered uh, the temple gates to be burned down. And as Josephus tells the story, the whole thing ends with Titus himself standing right in the main temple building. And as the fire begins to spread, uh, his soldiers fan out across the city 
wiping out all that remains of the resistance without mercy, and the whole thing just burns to the ground. And that is the end of Jerusalem as we know it. That event uh, seems to be what Jesus has in mind in verses 15 through 22. Uh, You might ask, how does he know that? You know, he's speaking in AD 30, uh, but this happens in AD 70. Well, the answer is that Jesus is God. He already told us back in verse 2 that not one stone of the temple would be left on another. And here he simply demonstrates that he knows exactly how that's going to happen. The abomination that causes desolation that he refers to here in verse 15 is probably Titus himself. Uh, Titus is the son of an emperor who believed that he was God. Uh, Titus himself would one day become emperor and God. You'll notice in your Bibles that those words, the abomination that causes desolation, uh, are marked as a quote from Daniel. Uh, And you might want to go back to Daniel later and have a look at uh, those references. You'll see uh, that there are quite a few options for how to interpret Daniel's prophecy. But I don't think we need to be too scared about that. The prophecies of the Old Testament, just the prophetic genre of the Old Testament, is one where we often have multiple levels of meaning. Uh, There are issues in these prophecies that address the lifetime of the writer itself, Uh, issues in these prophecies which address a kind of intermediate future, issues that address the far future. But I think we can here just take at face value the fact that uh, an ultimate far-flung fulfillment of Daniel's words is found in these actions of Titus Flavius. That's exactly what Jesus tells us is the case. The rest of the description in verses 16 to 22 shows Jesus kind of pastoring and warning his people, doesn't it, with with great sensitivity. His advice to the church when they see this event approaching is to get out, get out of the city. Even though the instinct of every patriotic Jew would have been to stay in Jerusalem, Jesus encourages Christians to flee because he knows the extremities of the siege that awaits It's striking, isn't it, I think, just to put what we know of the history now together with what we have in our Bibles and just think about it for a bit. striking that the very place where Jesus taught, the place where he died, the place where the early church formed all those great stories in Acts, uh, the place where Paul was arrested and packed off to Caesarea and from there to Rome, uh, you know, the streets where Peter walked and taught, the streets through which Jesus carried the cross, uh, that was the place where just a few years later, uh, the Romans would turn it into a battlefield and a bloodbath and a graveyard. There would have been Christians in the city uh, on the day that the Romans showed up. Uh, Little churches full of people a lot like us. Uh, And that's why Jesus sounded the warning. If you are there when these events take place, flee to the mountains. Get out. But here's the crucial thing. Jesus had just answered the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple, hadn't he? Uh, But is this going to be a sign uh, that the last days are about to end and that Jesus is about to return? That's implied in the disciples' question, isn't it? They think that when uh, not one stone is left on another and they're all thrown down, that that will be the point at which Jesus will return. But once again, Jesus' answer to that is no. If you follow along with Jesus from the end of verse 22, you'll find that he goes straight back into describing the general characteristics of the era that will follow his ascension. Yes, there is going to be an unprecedented disaster in Jerusalem in AD 70, but no, it won't serve as a kind of harbinger of the end. 
There will still be false messiahs. There will still be false prophets. And if anyone tells us that these false messiahs and false prophets are signs of the end or that they're actually Jesus himself bringing the end, Jesus says we mustn't believe them. Because when the end comes, when Jesus returns, it's going to be very obvious. Do you see that in verse 27? For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There won't be any possibility of missing Jesus' return when it happens. It will be universally uh, visible and obvious to everyone. So do you see that the uniform message of this section is that there are certain general characteristics that will mark the era in which we still live, Wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, uh, persecution, false teachers. But there won't be any signs uh, that we can look at and say definitively, ah, now we're at the end of the era and the second coming is just about to happen. We won't know that Jesus is coming right up till the moment that he comes. Now, I know that this is bad news for a whole genre of popular books about discerning the times and reading the signs. But I'm afraid in the light of this passage, that whole enterprise is sub-Christian nonsense. And yet that doesn't mean that Jesus is silent on this issue of his return. Actually, that's where he goes in the next part of the text. In verse 29, the tone shifts from the era that we live in, the last days, to the period between Jesus' ascension and his return to the return itself. And you can sense the change in the language, can't you, when you just go over that jump from 28 into 29. Jesus begins with a quote from Isaiah that unambiguously signals the end of history as we know it. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now whatever that means in actual practice, the message here is unavoidable, isn't it? The message is game over. The maker of creation, the owner of creation, is calling time and summoning his people to account. And so we read that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now there are some challenges for us here just trying to work out uh, what the order of events is that Jesus has in mind. Uh, and they're challenges that I'm not sure we're supposed to be able to fully resolve. It's, it's really challenging trying to piece this together with all of the other uh, parts of the Bible that address these topics. If you flip forward to verse 36 of our chapter, you'll see that Jesus tells us that not even he knows the day or the hour, but only the Father. And I must admit, for me, that's always made me very wary of trying to be too precise about the details of his return and exactly what will follow it. If not even Jesus knows the time or day, I for one am happy just to say, okay, look, this is way out of my pay grade. Looking at our chapter in chapter 25, though, I think he does intend for us to uh, at least make a few tentative suggestions. First of all, it looks like the very first thing on Jesus' agenda when he returns will be to gather his people to himself. We see that in verse 31, don't we? Uh, Where Jesus talks about sending out angels to gather the elect from the four winds. We see it also in verses 40 and 41, where we read that people are going to be going about their daily business uh, and God will just take away those who are his to be with Christ. We read about it again in chapter 25, verses 31 and 33, where Jesus talks about gathering his sheep and putting them in this place of honor and protection at his right side before he then goes out to gather the goats. In other parts of the New Testament, we get a bit more detail. 
you might be familiar with uh, uh, Paul's coverage of this stuff in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, there we get a picture of God's people being taken up to meet Christ in the air and coming uh, to the earth with him as a kind of victory procession. And now that probably sounds pretty weird to us. But that actually would have made quite a lot of sense, I think, to readers in the first century. Uh, the inhabitants of Roman towns did something a lot like this when the emperor uh, came to visit. A welcoming party would leave the town and go out to meet him on the road. And then they would uh, accompany him back as a sort of official ex- escort. Uh, the, the Romans had actually had a word that they used specifically for that rit- ritual called apantasis. And that's exactly the same word that Paul uses to describe what will happen on the day that Jesus returns. So it's very unlikely that what Paul has in mind here is that uh, Jesus is going to come and take Christians off to some kind of heavenly existence directly. Uh, Instead, Paul seems to be telling us that Christians who are alive to see that day uh, will form part of the honor guard for Jesus when he returns and then will come uh, to the world, uh, which is going to be the scene for the events that follow afterwards. 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 20 also mentioned the resurrection of the dead at this point. Uh, Even before Christians who are alive go up uh, to meet Jesus, uh, those who have died as believers in the past will be raised to join him. So that when this whole spectacle is complete, as we see it uh, in Jesus' description of the sheep and the goats in the passage Greg will take, every human being who has ever lived will be standing before him in two great groups. We can't avoid uh, the fact that the, uh, the message of this text is fundamentally separationist. Jesus returns to divide, doesn't he? We're going to see a whole lot more of that again in Greg's passage. But even in our text, the imagery is very striking. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus uses the story of the flood as an illustration His main point, of course, is the same lesson that we learned in the first half of the passage. You know, there will be no sign of the end of the last days. And so everyone will be taken by surprise, just as they were when the rains came and wiped away the ancient world. But the effect of Jesus' return is also going to be similar uh, to that of the flood. The flood divided the destinies of people who trusted in God and people who didn't. Before the flood, they were just living side by side, facing similar joys and similar challenges, eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage like all of us are. But uh, when the flood came, the ultimate buck-stopping difference between their destinies became apparent. The people who believed that they were gods and that they could save themselves were drowned. But the people who knew that they were creatures and that they needed a saviour were saved. And it's the same thing here, isn't it? Hard though it is to read this, painful though it is to get to grips with it, particularly for us. I I mean, I come from a non-Christian family. These things are not easy, are they? This text tells us that at any moment, because we have no way of knowing whether we're near or far from the end of the last days, Jesus may return and apply the standards of the cross to all humanity. Those whose sins are found paid for through no merit of their own and who live like recipients of that great gift will be swept up to be with him. Uh, They'll join him in his procession towards the earth. But those whose sins are not found paid for, not just the great sinners, but uh, those who just maybe lived out quiet, socially acceptable forms of rebellion against God, uh, they too will be swept up as goats, but destined for a future without him. 
You'll notice that there's no mention of a millennium here. For those of you who uh, are familiar with that term, um, uh, that's the period of a thousand years that's described in Revelation 20 in apparent connection with Christ's return. My instinct on that is simply to say that in this text, Jesus is focused on answering his disciples' question. They don't ask him that question, so he doesn't give them that answer. I think there is a case to be made here uh, to say that whatever the millennium is, it can't happen between Jesus' ascension uh, and his return, because Jesus covers that period in some detail here, doesn't he? And he doesn't seem to mention it. But my main thought with this, as Rod said last week, is that as readers of God's word, uh, we just need to make sure that we only shout what the Bible shouts, and we whisper what the Bible whispers Uh, And what the Bible tells us about the millennium is definitely just a whisper. Just one single text there in Revelation 20 that talks about it unambiguously. So I don't think that we ought to be too dogmatic or shouty about that, whatever our opinions. The bottom line here is simply that there is a great day ahead of us when Jesus will return. Between now and then we face an era with the same general characteristics that have characterized it ever since Jesus went back to heaven. Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, false teachers. They were part of the disciples' own life experience. Truly the generation that Jesus spoke to when he answered this question did not pass away until they'd seen all of it. And we see all of it too, don't we? All we have to do is turn on our TVs. We can see pretty much everything that Jesus said here in the space of five minutes online. Will there be any indication uh, that the end of the era is imminent? No. It will come like a flood. It will come like a thief in the night. The return of Jesus is the very next thing on God's agenda. We have no idea when it's going to happen. But is that a problem? Not really. Because the authentic Christian response to these truths is that we need to be ready every day. Not that we need to get ready when we see a sign, but that we need to be ready for Jesus to return at any moment. Okay, so that's Tichi. (laughs) Well done for tracking. Now let's shift gears a bit and think about some applications. What are we supposed to really do about this? How is it going to change the way that we live and act? Well, probably the two most striking truths that we need to work into our own lives uh, from this text are truths actually that we've already seen coming uh, when we uh, heard Jesus teach that parable of the wedding banquet a couple of chapters back. Number one, Jesus will return. Number two, we need to be ready. Let's start with number one. Jesus wants us to live with our eyes open to the prospect that life as we know it here will end one day. It may seem fantastic to believe that. It really is fantastic to believe that. And yet Jesus would have us believe it and live in the light of it. And we saw in our wedding banquet passage, didn't we, that we've got good reasons to believe it. When God first announced that he was stepping into human history to redeem and undo all the damage that we've done, and the one that he would set his king on the throne and judge the thoughts and actions of every person who has ever lived, truly that did seem fantastic, even ridiculous. But when Jesus came, we saw those promises begin to come true, didn't we? God set his king on the throne, on the cross, God took the thoughts and actions of every person who trusts in him and judged them right there in human history in front of our very eyes. So now the promises that God has made about the end shouldn't seem so unlikely to us as maybe uh, we feel kind of tempted to believe they are. 
The process that Jesus describes here in our text has already begun. There's a sense of inevitability to it now. But that brings us to number two, doesn't it? We need to be ready for the end. We need to be wearing our wedding clothes each day, ready to be called to our seats at the banquet. We need to be living in a way that reflects the truth of Jesus' words here. But we're going to see a whole bunch more of that with Greg Letts next week, so I'm going to leave the powder dry uh, for him. (laughs) The next thing we need to do in response, though, is we need to be warned, right? The bulk of what Jesus has to say about the last days here is designed to tell us that being a Christian in this period will not be easy. We'll face opposition. We'll face discouragement. We'll find ourselves influenced by people who either knowingly or unknowingly will try to misrepresent the gospel. The love of many, says Jesus, will grow cold. And yet he tells us that these things, or he tells us these things so that we can be among the people who keep going. That's the reason why he says it. He tells us these things so that God helping us, we can decide even before the tough times come that we will not cave in. And that we will not give up on the gospel, no matter how plausible the alternatives sound or how severe the disapproval of our friends or our families or our society becomes. Jesus tells us these things because he's expecting, believing to be difficult. And he's looking for followers who are prepared to dog it out. Sometimes we don't think of Christianity like that, do we? You think, oh, well, I'm finding my faith really hard at the moment. There must be something wrong. No, not wrong. If we're finding it hard, we need to say, okay, that's what's expected. Now let's get our wheels on the tarmac and keep moving. The next thing I think we need to do is have courage to resist eschatological speculation. I don't know how much of a temptation this is for you, but I think there are some of us who are maybe prone to this kind of thing. But the clear message of this text is that there is nothing so special about our era and our political situation uh, here at the beginning of the 21st century that makes it any more likely that Jesus is going to return now or in the near future than at any previous point in uh, the history of these last days in which we live. As Christians, we seem to be constantly besieged, don't we, by books and popular speakers telling us that the falling of the Twin Towers is a sign of the end, or the collapse of the housing bubble is a sign of the end, or the Arab Spring is a sign of the end, or whatever the latest eschatological fad is. But honestly, if we believe that, I think we're just taking ourselves far too seriously, aren't we? Have we not read any history? Are we really so naive to believe that the convulsions of our own times are any more serious or significant than the fall of Jerusalem, the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Reformation, the Second World War? Jesus tells us in our text that not even he knows the day or hour of the end. Um, It will come like a thief in the night. So let's just get over ourselves here a little bit uh, and realize that there isn't going to be an incontrovertible sign that the end is nigh. And instead, just concentrate on living as if it could happen any day. You see, the problem with all this eschatological speculation is that it actually just misses the most obvious and most important application of them all. You know, imagine that you're a passenger on a cruise liner uh, that's run aground on a reef and is in imminent danger of sinking. You could stand on deck uh, listening to every creak and groan coming from deep within the hull as the ship moves inexorably towards its doom and uh, say, oh, I wonder if that's the sign that we're about to go to the bottom. Oh, what about that one? Oh, that was a really bad one. Maybe that's the sign that we're about to go to the bottom. 
What about that? That was an even worse one. But that would totally miss the point, wouldn't it? While the ship is still afloat, you have the opportunity to help rescue people who are still trapped inside. The principal application of what Jesus teaches us here about the last days is that we have the opportunity and the responsibility to tell our neighbours and our friends and our families the good news of the gospel that will see them rescued on the day that Jesus returns if they accept it for themselves. And so our marching orders for the times in which we live are actually really simple. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I know for myself uh, that I would be very ashamed often uh, to think that you might have returned um, at some points in my life, even over the last week. And had you found me doing what I was doing or not doing the things that I should have been doing. And yet, God, the application of this text is that the days that we live in are days when that's absolutely uh, what might happen. You have nothing left on your agenda and you're telling us that your return will be like a thief in the night, like the coming of the flood, Uh, the circumstances of the world all around us correspond exactly uh, to those that you uh, told us would characterize the whole of this era from your ascension through to your return. Help us then to be prodded by every news item, by every thing that we hear and see to say, come on, this is the, these are the last days and the last days are only going to end one way, unexpectedly. So help us to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to uh, continue to worship. Usher's